This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask His guidance this morning on our study of His Word. Father, You have revealed Yourself to us in Your Word down through the centuries, over 2,000 years of revelatory activity through the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles have given us Your Word, the self-disclosure of Yourself to us, that we might know who You are and that we might come to understand who we are as creatures in your image, in your likeness, that we might fulfill the purpose that you have for us. Father, it's your word that comes to us with a self-authenticating authority. For your word, your very word, comes uh, with the evidence that you have spoken and that you have given us the truth. And that as we, as the Lord said, as we know the truth, the truth will set us free. Now, Father, as we study your word today, we pray that we might be willing to submit ourselves to the authority of your word. God, the Holy Spirit, would make these things clear to us. And that each time we study the word, we just come a little closer to understanding the truths that are there. And we are motivated by God, the Holy Spirit, to apply these things in our life that you might be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, where we've been looking at Paul's opening prayer in this epistle, his prayer of thanksgiving to uh, the Colossian church. And in Colossians 1, 3 through 4, we've read uh, Paul saying, We always give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel. Now, as I've expanded this translation a little bit, we see that the main thought here has to do with his prayer, that he is, that whenever he is praying for Uh, the Colossian church, or whenever he's praying for any of the other churches that he has sent epistles to, he uh, frequently makes this statement that he gives thanks for them. And in his giving of thanks for them, we see something of the spiritual priority of our lives. We understand something of what should be important to us in our own spiritual growth. And so he focuses on these three virtues we've studied in the last three lessons, the, their faith in Jesus Christ, and I pointed out that isn't just 
justification faith at the point of salvation, but their ongoing faith as they are growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, learning to trust him uh, more consistently. And the second virtue is their love for all the saints. That is, as they are growing spiritually, God the Holy Spirit is producing within them the fruit of the Spirit, the first of which is mentioned in Galatians 5.22 to be uh, love. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, kindness. The first one mentioned there is love. And then there's this causal statement in the fifth verse, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. And as I pointed out, this, it's important to look at this in terms of the grammatical structure because the, the hope that is laid up for them in heaven is related to their love for all the saints. It's not related to the whole clause before, but their love for all the saints is motivated by the hope that they have in something in the future that is laid up for them in heaven. Now, last time we looked at hope. And I pointed out that hope is to be understood as a confidence in future realities, future certainties that motivate us through present unpleasantness. Hope is something that is greater than faith. It is built on faith, just like faith. Faith is uh, we walk by faith and not by sight. Faith is trusting in something that is unseen. We're not operating on empiricism or rationalism. We're trusting in the word of God and what he has told us. But hope goes beyond that. Hope is almost uh, faith on steroids. It is, uh, it is a certain expectation, a confidence that, that goes beyond even a robust faith. It, it, it is it is something where the future is so real that it changes how we handle the present. Now, I set forth a chart last time to try to illustrate the relation between uh, faith, hope, and love, that faith, uh, we have these faith-focused spiritual skills, uh, confession of sin, walking by the Spirit, faith rests real, grace orientation, doctrinal orientation, all of which are related to uh, the foundation of, of faith. And I use this diagram to express it that the trusting in God's word, that God has made a promise or a command in Scripture, and we implement that because we're trusting in him. And so this relates to confession, the application of 1 John 1, 9. It relates to the command to walk by means of the spirit and not according to the flesh. Uh, it relates to our understanding of grace, not just in terms of justification, but in terms of sanctification, our ongoing spiritual life and spiritual growth, as well as doctrinal orientation. The more we come to believe God's word, the more we trust in God's word, uh, the more real it becomes to us, and the, our confidence is strengthened. So there's an interrelationship uh, uh, between each of these factors. It's not just one thing, then another thing, then another, but they they intersect with each other, and as we grow in doctrinal orientation, it increases our grace orientation. As we are increasing in grace orientation and doctrinal orientation, then our walk by the Spirit becomes more consistent, and we are, in all of this, we are trusting in the truth of God's Word. And so we see that something that undergirds our spiritual growth is our concept of truth, which is what the apostle brings in in two verses, 
in Colossians 1.5 and in 1.7, he emphasizes this concept of truth. Back to the chart, we have our foundational skills, which relate to faith and growing in faith and increasing the consistency of our of our walk by faith and not by sight. And then the more mature aspects relate to love. It's not easy to love people who are unlovable. It's not easy to love because we're all mired in our own arrogance and self-absorption that to focus on other people and what's going on in the lives of other people demands a certain uh, divorce from our uh, standard self-absorption. And so it takes a certain amount of doctrinal uh, understanding, a certain amount of trust in the Lord and growth before love really begins to mature. But what motivates us is hope. That's the We get this from the grammar of, of verse 5, that uh, opening uh, causal participle there tells us that it is because of our confident expectation for what is laid up for us in heaven that motivates our love for all the saints. And I pointed out last time that there are several places in the scriptures that uh, connect these three together, uh, passages like 1 Thessalonians 5.8, let us who are of the day, that is believers, be sober, Putting on, and that doesn't mean an absence of alcohol. It means objective thinking, which is based on objective truth. Putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. And so that here we have another place where the word salvation or the verb sozo, and I just noticed this last week that I, it seems like every time I turn on the radio, I'm hearing about a new coffee that's being promoted called sozo. It's going to bring you health. See, the word sozo, they claim it has more um, antioxidants than blueberries and a lot of other health-giving features, and so they call it sozo. Well, that can only, I, I don't know for sure, but it can only come from the Greek word because one of the meanings of sozo, or to be saved, has to do with health, to be healed, to be delivered from uh, from health problems. And so every time you see this word salvation, it doesn't mean uh, getting a uh, get-out-of-the-lake-of-fire-free card. It has to do with deliverance from something. It can be physical illness. It can be deliverance from the penalty of sin, deliverance from the power of sin, or deliverance from the presence of sin. And so here we have... Uh, this use of salvation as a as a future reality that is related to hope. So it has to do with our eventual glorification, which is salvation, deliverance from the uh, presence of sin. We look at passages like Romans 5, 3 through 5, which relate hope to the whole growth process where we're having to deal with all of the adversities and problems that we face in life. We can face all kinds of testing. This time of year we often face a certain amount of mental attitude testing in relation to the IRS. Now let's bow our heads together for a few moments of silent prayer so that we can get back in fellowship. Um, We have problems with health. 
We have problems with just the details of life, problems with uh, people at work. We have problems with dealing with bureaucratic systems and all these other things. And this progress is set forth in Romans 5, 3 through 5, that we glory in tribulations. We don't grouse about them. You don't moan and groan about all your hard times and let everybody know how difficult life has been for you. Uh, We glory in our tribulations because... It gives us the opportunity to test God in a way, to trust his word, apply the promise, and to see how God's word is real in our lives. So we glory in our tribulations because we know that in adversity or tribulation, it produces perseverance, hanging in there. Perseverance develops character, character hope. So if you want to get to that midpoint in the spiritual life, really having a robust hope in your life, unfortunately, the way to get from point A to point Z goes through adversity and tribulation. That's the bad news. The good news is that hope doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In other words, God has given us sufficient provision to strengthen us, to give us the endurance in the midst of that adversity so that no matter what it is, it's not too big for the grace of God. I don't know what your problem might be. We have uh, 100 people or so here today, and you've got all kinds of problems. And I can't uh, isolate every one of them. But there's not one problem that you or I face in life that is a surprise to God. Billions of years ago, God knew that you were going to have the problems that you have, and so he included the promises and the principles and the provisions for those difficulties in his word so that if we just learn his word and apply his word, claim those promises, then God is going to strengthen us and see us through the problem. He's not going to remove it but he's going to see us through it. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that there is no temptation or testing, actually, uh, taken you, but such as is common to man. Whatever your problem is, you may think that nobody else in the world has ever gone through this problem. But there are thousands, if not millions, of other people who've gone through this problem, millions of other Christians who've gone through this problem. And the promise of Scripture says, but God is faithful and will make a way of escape so that you can get away from it. Wait a minute, that's not what it said. So that you can endure it. Same word that we have here in Romans for perseverance, so that we can endure it, so that we can hang in there, and rather than being overcome and overwhelmed by whatever the problem is, we can demonstrate the grace and the power of God and the truth of his word by overcoming it. And so... We're at, at our verse in Colossians 1.5 that it is because of the hope that we have that the Colossian believers and you and I see our love for all the saints increase. But this hope here is not just a, a, an abstract hope. It's not just a hope in, in a general future in heaven. It's not just a hope that, well, I just have to go through this veil of tears for another 15, 20, or 30 years. Maybe Jesus will come back tomorrow, praise God, Maranatha, and all the rest. But he may not come for another 100 or 200 years. And you may live another 10, 15, 20, or 30 years, 
By the grace of God, you might remember all of them or most of them. And then we die and we go to heaven. But it's more than just this future confidence that when I die, I know where my destiny is, that I'm not just going to go into the grave and become fodder for worms and various other bugs, but that that I'm going to go all that I am, all that I am as a person, that I'm going to be absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord Jesus Christ, that that's a reality, but it's more than that. It's more than just ending up in a box in the ground uh, thinking that I'm just going to be uh, in this hole forever and and my body will just uh, disappear and uh, decompose and then there's nothing. And see, that's the sad reality for most people if they are truly consistent with what they believe, if they truly think about what it is that they believe and the implications of it, if they believe that there's no personal infinite God that has a plan and a purpose for reality, then, then they just have a fantasy. And so many people have a fantasy because they can't live with the reality that all there is is a future box or a future urn of ashes, and that's it, and that all there is is what happens in time between my birth and my death. People can't live like that. They live as if there's some future. When their loved ones die, uh, there's some hope. Now, there are some people who try to be consistent with that, but, um, but it usually falls apart at some point in time because it is a depressing reality. Ethically, it means that anything goes, and life is just just rather meaningless, so it doesn't matter what I do. But you can't live like that. If there's no ultimate reality, no ultimate truth, then life really is just what you make of it, and whatever you do has got to be okay, because if there's nothing beyond today, if there's nothing beyond this physical existence, then you really don't have any basis for saying that some things are good and some things are bad. That was the conclusion of existentialism. Existentialism is set forth in the philosophy of people like Jean-Paul Sartre and others who basically said that, that life has no meaning except what you assign to it. So if you go out and become a mass murderer or you become a great philanthropist, either one is good because all you've done is validate your existence. But you can't really say that one is better than the other because that would imply some sort of universal truth. And so you're left with pushing that belief system to its logical end. You're pretty much left with a hopeless reality. But only Christianity gives real hope because real hope is based on real knowledge and real knowledge is based on absolute truth, a sense of truth that is more than just what is true for you or true for me, just something that, that makes, you, makes life work well for you, but somebody else across the room has a different uh, concept of truth. They have a different truth, and so if that works for them, that's fine. That's how we use the word today. Uh, this word truth is, is so often bandied about. Well, everybody has their, their own truth. Whatever works for one person, it's not necessarily going to work for the other one. So we, we've reduced uh, truth to something that is nothing more than simply uh, people's opinion. And you can't have very much confidence 
and something that is opinion-based, despite the fact that we live in something called a democratic republic where people, where we believe in the principle of majority rule, the majority not only are rarely right, the majority, are, which includes you and I, are mostly people who, when they do discover the truth, do their best to avoid it. And it is rare to have someone who has the integrity and the honesty to truly face truth. But faith, hope, and love are all based on truth. And this hope that we're talking about, or that Paul's talking about in Colossians 1.5, is a hope, a certainty, that is laid up in heaven. If there's no heaven, then this is just meaningless babble, and you can't get anything out of it, so let's just tear up the New Testament and go home. So the only other option is that this is speaking about genuine truth. Now, Peter uses the same uh, phraseology in, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He starts off, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has, the New King James says, begotten us again, uh, but it is more of an active sense. He's regenerated us to a living Hope. It's not a dead hope. It's not a somewhat uncertain hope. It is a living hope because he's talking about resurrection. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In a few weeks, we will celebrate the uh, Resurrection Sunday. Resurrection Sunday is one of the greatest uh, times uh, for believers to remember the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross because until 33 A.D., no one ever rose from the dead as Jesus rose from the dead. You had various uh, resuscitations that occurred uh, throughout history where people who were alive died and then they were brought back to life miraculously, but they were still in their mortal body and they still died eventually and they still went to the grave. But on that resurrection morning, the Lord Jesus Christ had victory over death and acquired a new resurrection body, which is the model for the body that we will have. So we, our regeneration is toward an end, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to, verse 4 says, an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away. It is reserved in heaven for us. Now, this word for reserved here is related to the word for reserved in Colossians uh, 1.5 that is laid up for us in heaven. It's the Greek word apokemai, which means to store something up, to lay it up, to reserve it to an appointed end. It's not the same word, but they're synonyms. And it has the idea that something has been set aside for us in heaven. And it's set aside for you, that is, all believers who are kept by the power of God. Notice it's, you're not kept by your works. That's the Calvinistic uh, confusion of perseverance by the saints. Where per, the perseverance takes place on the part of the omnipotence of God. We're kept by the power of God. Uh, through faith for salvation, that's that ultimate deliverance. Again, this is phase three salvation, phase one being justification, phase two experiential salvation, our experiential sanctification, and phase three ultimate deliverance. 
through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It has to do with this inheritance, something future that is reserved for us, that belongs to us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in Ephesians 1.18, Paul refers to this as well. He says that the eyes of our understanding might be enlightened. He talks about the perception of our, uh, of our soul for understanding God's word for a purpose, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. See, there's not an uncertainty. There's a, the Bible represents the fact that there is a truth, a, a truth that is knowable, a truth that is understandable. It's not a guesswork. It's not this person's opinion over that person's uh, opinion. It is something that is grounded in the very language and revelation uh, of Scripture. And we can know this uh, with certainty. And you can only say that if you believe that there is such a thing as absolute truth. Now, we live in a world today where truth is much questioned. Not, it's not questioned so much anymore what is truth. That was uh, expressed by the well-known question of Pontius Pilate in the interrogation with Jesus when he asked Jesus if if he was uh, king of the Jews, and and, um, Jesus responded that this is true, and Pilate says, well, what is truth? The question of the skeptic. No longer do people ask what is true. Today the question is, is there truth? And the answer that modern man gives is, no, there's not. Because modern man has landed in an unsettled sea of, of, of chaos in terms of knowledge. They've rejected completely the possibility of knowing truth. Yet they can't live. They can't live as if that's not there, that there is no truth. Every time somebody says, well, that's right and that's wrong, every time you hear uh, a conservative uh, get mad at a liberal and say, well, they're wrong. Well, they've appealed to some universal absolute in the liberal, and I use that term not just in terms of politics, but in terms of their understanding of, of knowledge and truth. The liberal also gets mad at the conservative and says, you can't do that, that's wrong. Now, ultimately, they get pushed into that corner and they get mad and they say, you can't do that. Well, why not? You know, what's the universal absolute? How can you use terms like should or would or wrong or right unless the language itself reflects something about the nature of reality that there is an absolute universal truth to whom all people are accountable? And it equally apply, this truth equally applies to someone in Southeast Asia working in a rice paddy or somebody in India who's uh, worshiping a pantheon of uh, 500 different gods, or somebody who's working on Wall Street and doesn't think there's any such thing as a, as a god or that all religion is silly and superstitious, but they all assume by the way they talk at times that there's something universal. Even the fact that they use language applies uh, necessitates a something universal, as we'll see in a little bit. So the scripture assumes that this that truth is knowable, but modern man quit assuming that or accepting that uh, in the 17th to 18th centuries. The our brilliant philosophers began to think that that there really wasn't a unifying truth that man could actually know, and of course that 
uh, became uh, clear in the teaching of Immanuel Kant, who really shifted all, th- all philosophical thought for the last two centuries, and most of the problems we have in the modern world can be laid at the, at the footsteps, at the feet, rather, of Immanuel Kant, because with, his, with that philosophical shift, truth became unknowable, absolutes became unknowable, right and wrong became unknowable, God became, everything becomes unknowable. And so modern man has been cast adrift upon this sea of, of uncertainty, and they can only live as if there's certainty if they just assume it. They just make sort of an existential leap into the darkness. As Kierkegaard used the phrase, leap of faith. Faith is not a leap into something unknown. It is grasping the reality of something that is knowable and known and is true. Paul uses the same word, apokemai, something laid up in 2 Timothy 4.8, where he says, finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. So again, we come back to this idea of inheritance, and it's related to rewards. There are four different crowns that are listed in Scripture, as we've studied before, one of which is the crown of righteousness. Paul refers to here, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. The day is a reference to the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. But there are actually two different categories of inheritance that we see in the Scripture. These are seen in Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. Now, I always have a little fun with this. Uh, this is always an important verse to illustrate that, that what you read in your Bible has always, already, no matter how good the translation, it's always sort of been washed a little bit through somebody's uh, interpretive grid. And so I have two different ways of punctuating this up on the screen. The first one at the top is the way it's normally punctuated in most translations. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So this applies to everyone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if children, and that is a first-class condition, assuming the reality of the situation, that if children, and we are, then heirs. And then there is an M-dash there to explain the heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. But as you see, there is a comma after the word Christ, and the two terms, heirs of God and joint heirs of Christ, are joined by a conjunction, and this is seen by the way it is punctuated to refer to the same thing, that heirs of God and joint heirs of Christ apply equally to anyone who is a child of God. And then we have the clause, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. problem with this punctuation is that it makes heirship conditional upon suffering with Jesus. Now, a better way to understand this is seen in the second example there where I've changed the location of the commas. There in verse 17 we read, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, comma, and joint heirs with Christ, no comma, if indeed we suffer with him. Now, in this view, there's two categories of inheritance. The first category belongs to all believers, heirs of God. 
And the second category is joint heirs with Christ, and the condition applies only to the second category. We become joint heirs with Christ on the condition that we suffer with him. Christ learned obedience, Hebrews tells us, by the things he suffered. Even in his sinless humanity, Jesus still had to grow in sanctification. He had to learn obedience to the Father as he grew up. That doesn't mean he was disobedient, but he had to learn uh, obedience to the Father, learn to submit to his authority. And so if we go through that same process, then we are experientially sanctified, and so this becomes a second category of inheritance. Now, just to illustrate how important punctuation is, I'll put this sentence up here on the screen. A woman without her man is nothing. Now, if we had the time, I would say, okay, everybody take out a piece of paper, write down this sentence, and properly punctuate it. And what we would probably discover is that most women would... um, Uh, or most men would punctuate it this way. A woman without her man is nothing. Main clause being woman is nothing. See, you put those two, the the second comma there after after man, and you're basically saying that uh, a a woman without a man is, is, is nothing. That's how most men would probably punctuate it, but most women would punctuate it this way. A woman... Without her, comma, man is nothing. (laughs) See, you just move that comma from one word to another, and you change the whole meaning of the sentence. See, that's an interpretive decision. There were no commas in the Greek or Hebrew. There were no no punctuation marks in Greek. In fact, in the earliest manuscripts, they were called uh, uncials. They were just all capital letters, no spaces between words at all. Uh, They didn't even hyphenate its syllables. They would just write all the letters out till they came to the end of the line, and then move down to the next line. And so you would have to learn the thrust of the, of the punctuation by looking at the grammar. That's why Greek syntax uh, is so important. And so when we look at it that way, we realize that you have to bring a certain amount of theology to the text to understand what it is saying. And if you put that comma... Uh, after Christ instead of after God, then basically what you do is you, you make that conditional clause, if indeed we suffer with him, as applying to both categories of inheritance. And that's not true. There, is, there are some things that every believer gets at the moment of glorification. We get a resurrection body. We are freed from the presence of the sin nature. We are going to have life everlasting in heaven. We're going to be uh, resurrected from the grave at the instant of the raptures as the uh, trump of God, the voice of the archangel uh, cries forth, the dead in Christ will rise first, we're told in 1 Thessalonians 4:13 through 18. And these are things that every believer shares in common. But there are d- differences, there are distinctions, and those are described at the judgment seat of Christ in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, 
uh, verses uh, 10 and following talk about one category of works or wood, hay, and straw, another category of gold, silver, and precious stones. And everybody's going to have a different amount depending on their consistent walk with the Holy Spirit. And so there are differences in rewards, and some are not going to have any because they didn't grow any, and they were disobedient, yet they're saved, yet as uh, yet with nothing. And they're, they're um, <clears throat> going to get into heaven, but they're not going to have any additional rewards. So it is understanding this that motivates us to love one another because we recognize there's accountability and the future at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, Colossians 1.5 goes on to say that because of this hope which is laid up for us in heaven, that is our future rewards, future accountability, Paul says, of which, that is this hope, of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel. Now, there's three important nouns in that phrase, word, truth, and gospel. The word, word, is translates the Greek word logos, which often it's translated word, but it has about 18 different meanings. It can mean thought. It can mean reason. It can mean a number of different things. It can even mean message. I think it's a little easier to understand the thrust of this passage if we translate it as message, that which you heard before, and the message of the truth of the gospel. It's not just the message of truth. It's not just the message of the gospel. It's the message of the truth of the gospel. Paul emphasizes that there is something in the gospel that is true, and because it is true with a capital T, it, is, it gives us certain confident knowledge and information about the future. But truth is always under attack. Uh, even in the 17th century, Blaise Pascal, in his work, uh, Ponce, which is a, a ref, uh, his reflection upon and thoughts about Christianity, said, Truth is so obscure in these times and falsehood so established that unless we love the truth, we cannot know it. Of course, he was living in France at the time, and we know, all know how the French can be, but... It's mostly, I think, it was related to the depravity of the Roman Catholic Church in the Counter-Reformation period. He was what is known as a Jansenist. A Jansenist was a follower of uh, <clears throat> William Jansen, who was a Dutch, uh, Dutch theologian, Roman Catholic theologian, who was accused of being a Calvinist because he believed in original sin and the need of a personal conversion, personal trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Pascal was clearly a believer. He is uh, also known as a mathematician and a philosopher. He invented the mechanical adding machine, among a number of other things. And when he was um, in his 30s, he basically paused in his pursuit of mathematics and physics to study uh, on the Christ, uh, study Christianity, and he wrote his famous work here to, uh, in his contemplation of the greatness and the misery of man. There's another one of those great terms emphasizing man's total depravity, uh, that man is completely unable to do anything to uh, merit God's favor. 
we often water that down today. There's a hymn beneath the cross of Jesus. I don't think we've sung it. But in the last line, it got revised sometime in the early 20th century to uh, uh, where the last line, the uh, writer compares the glories of God's grace to, and it was, it was changed to my own unworthiness. But the original line was my own worthlessness. Now, there's a lot of difference between being worthless and being unworthy. Unworthy means you've got some good things going on for you. But worthless means you don't have anything that you can rely on. You know, this is typical. You also have uh, other hymns that have talked about the fact that, uh, uh, you know, Christ died for such a worm as I. I remember hearing somebody in the 70s say, oh, that's that old worm theology. We have to change it. And so modern hymnals will say, such a one as I, because we're we're elevating our view of humanity here. We're we're pretty good most of the time. We have a few flaws Jesus had to die for, but we're not worthless. We're just we're just really unworthy. And so um, you see this with Pascal. He's contemplating the misery of man, and that in he understood total depravity that we're lost. And we're completely unable to do anything uh, to honor God. He's also uh, well known for his uh, Pascal's Triangle, which, as you work down from the top, if you take the two the two numbers two numbers next to each other and add them together, then the number that goes down between them is the sum of those two numbers, and that this works itself all the way down. And so, uh, if you I want to have that explained to you any further, then you can talk to uh, Mary Jane Freehoff and she'll explain it to you. Or Tom Wright. Oh, Tom kept wanting me to say, no, 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 why can't you talk about Fibonacci numbers instead of the Pascal's triangle? So I can't even pronounce it. I don't know if I can talk about it. So Scripture says that, that we focus on the truth of the gospel that there is a truth. It implies an absolute, something that is certain, something that is not just true for you because you were raised in a Christian culture, because you're, you know, white, middle-class American, but it's true for anybody at any time, no matter what their background is, no matter what their culture is. We have a problem with that. We call it multiculturalism. It's a result of postmodernism, which is just existentialism gone to seed. Uh, There's really nothing new under the sun. It's just that we keep giving it new terminology, and we put the, you know, we revise the emperor's new clothes so that his fashion is a little more or up to date, but it's still not there. There is a truth. There is truth. Even the very language that we use to communicate to anybody about anything implies universal truth. If you just talk to somebody and say, well, it's raining outside, you expect the other person to understand that you are not saying that it's snowing or that it's clear, but that you're saying that there is liquid precipitation outside. I mean, even the writers who promote um, uh, postmodernism and multiculturalism today expect their readers to understand what they write in the same sense that they intend it to be understood. But what they are telling you in their writings is that there's no universal truth and you can assign whatever meaning you want 
to whatever it is that you read. And so it may mean one thing to one person, but it can mean something else to another person with the exception of this book that I'm writing. Of course, if you fill out your income tax, since it's April again, we ought to get back to taxes. If you follow the instructions in your tax, uh, tax bulletin the same way that some of these people want to interpret scripture or literature or, dare I introduce, politics in the Constitution, if they interpret the Constitution the same way they interpret their, uh, their tax code, they would, they would be doing well, but no, no, but see, there's immediate consequences to not literally interpreting your, um, the, the instructions in the tax code. Of course, you can always avoid it and send your taxes to the, you know, the high priest or priestess of the tax system, which is your local CPA, and that way you never have to be confronted with the issues of literal or non-literal hermeneutics. But Paul says that the gospel is a truth. There is one truth. And in Galatians 1.6, he castigates the Galatians because they had gotten away from this. They had brought in something else. And it wasn't just a reliance upon grace and God's provision, but a reliance upon trusting God and doing something. And so he says that he is so amazed that they so quickly turned away uh, from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Here the word is different of another kind, which is not a uh, another, that is another of the same kind, but, there, but it's a different, categorically different. It was a works-based gospel. And so he says, let them be anathema. Now this verse uses the word gospel in a narrow sense. The word gospel, as we've studied in Romans and um, and some other places, the word gospel has a narrow and a broad sense. Normally when you hear the word gospel, you think of the message that a person must believe in order to avoid eternity in the lake of fire. That's the narrow sense. And there are very few places other than maybe Galatians 1, 6, and 7 that use gospel in that narrow sense. Most places use it like Paul uses it in Romans 1.16. It's not only the message of deliverance from eternity in the lake of fire, but it's all of the implications of that. It's the whole body of doctrine that comes with that belief. So it is, in a true sense, not a Pentecostal charismatic sense, the full gospel. The full gospel of everything that God has given us in Christ. And so in Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. See, Paul never uses that word salvation for just justification in Romans. It always refers to the end game of complete deliverance. For it, that is, the gospel of Christ is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. So it implies a certain view of truth that if you are a Christian and you believe in the Bible, you have a certain view of truth that philosophers call a coherence view of truth. That's their way of saying that truth conforms to the way things are. It's what actually occurs, that something is true because it accurately explains the way things are. And so there's a belief in truth that there is an absolute reality 
and that something is true because it conforms to it. As Christians, we believe the absolute reality is defined by the thinking of God. And so Jesus is able to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Now, you only have three options. Actually, there's a fourth option. The option most people take is they just ignore it, and they don't want to think about it because that somehow will uh, just create too much problems in their life, and let's just go back to drinking and partying and making money and whatever it is we do, and let's not think about anything serious. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's either telling the truth or he's telling a lie. He either is or he isn't. He's either the only way to God or he's not the only way to God. If he's, the, if he's not the only way to God, then he has told a lie that has deceived millions and millions of people, in which case he is one of the greatest deceivers of all of history, and he should be one of the great villains of history ranked up there along with Stalin and Hitler and uh, the Ayatollahs in Iran and a number of other people, Gaddafi. But... No one thinks that his life really validates that. So they think, oh, he's a great teacher. Well, if he's teaching lies, he can't be much of a teacher. Oh, he's a great reformer. What, is he reforming us from bad to worse? So the only option you have is that Jesus must be telling the truth. Oh, there's that nasty word again. We don't want, we've been suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. All you want to do is get that jack-in-the-box to pop its head up once again and upset my life. Well, it's better to have it upset now than when you're suddenly dead and you're going into the lake of fire. You can either be a little uncomfortable now or greatly uncomfortable then. Beyond that, Jesus also said in his high priestly prayer to the Father in John 17, 17, Sanctify them by your truth. By truth, your word is truth. He presupposes an absolute truth, an absolute body of doctrine that is the basis for our spiritual growth and spiritual life, and that is embedded within God's word, God's revelation. So Paul says that that this word of truth that comes to us, the truth of the gospel, is related to the hope laid up for us in heaven. Colossians 1.6, he goes on to say that this word, this message of the truth of the gospel has come to you, that is the Colossians, as it is also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit. Now, that word fruit is kind of a generic term. It basically means it brings forth results, the results that God intended. It brings forth production. Uh, the fr- fruit could here is just a broad term. It could include Uh, It brings uh, about converts to Christianity as well as spiritual growth among those who are uh, saved. So he says the gospel, this message, the full gospel, is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you, Colossians, since the day you heard and knew, and then we have this phrase again, the grace of God in truth. And here we have that in clause in Scripture in the Greek indicating by means of truth. The only way you know the grace of God is by means of the truth. And the truth is where? It's in God's Word. And there we learn of the grace of God. They learned about it because you can only learn about it from a preacher. How can they hear unless someone tells them, Paul says in Romans, Romans uh, 10? 
Colossians 1.7, Paul says, As you learn this from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. He was the pastor of that congregation who had gone to Rome with these questions for Paul, and he is still there in Rome with Paul, and Paul would eventually be sending him back to Colossae. But he says, you learn this, you learn the gospel and all of its implications from Epaphras, who's a faithful minister. It's not required, Scripture says, for a pastor to build a big church. In fact, Jesus says, I will build a church, you feed my sheep. What's required of pastors is only one thing, Scripture says, and that is to be faithful. To be faithful in their teaching of God's Word, to be faithful in their responsibilities to the spiritual gift that God has given them and in serving God. And so he says Epaphras meets the test. He gets an A+. He's a faithful minister of Christ on their behalf, and he is the one who also declared to Paul their love in the Spirit. So he ties it back to their spiritual growth, their spiritual maturity, and that this is exemplified by their love for all the saints, but it's produced by the Holy Spirit with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this morning, to recognize that we have a spiritual growth trajectory that has been set forth from eternity past. You have a plan and a purpose, and it is accomplished through your word and through the Holy Spirit. And it is your word that is absolute truth because it comes from your omniscience and your knowledge. You know all things. You have determined all things to be what they are because of who you are as the creator God. And so it is our responsibility to conform our thinking to your thinking because your thinking is that which establishes reality. And so, Father, we pray that we might submit to your word, that we might be sanctified by your word because your word is truth. Father, we pray that there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's that we are saved by grace through faith, simply believing or trusting in Jesus Christ. And at that instant, we have eternal salvation. You don't have to pray a prayer, walk an aisle, raise your hand. You simply believe that Jesus died for your sins. The instant you believe that, then God is going to impute his righteousness to you, declare you to be just, and that you will be then given eternal life, regenerated, and that life can never be taken from you. So, Father, we thank you for what we've studied today. We pray that God, the Holy Spirit, would challenge us with these things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.